Welcome to the Reunion Church Podcast. We're a community following Jesus, seeking the good of our city. We hope today's teaching is both challenging and encouraging. If we could be a resource to you on your spiritual journey, don't hesitate to reach out via our website at reunionnyc.com. Um, today we're going to start a series in the book of Revelation, really focusing on the first three chapters, and we're calling it Dear Church, um, Letters to the Seven Churches. What is it that God speaks to the early church, and what can we glean from that in terms of returning back to God? Um, it's that Lenten season leading up to Easter, and so what I really want to talk about is I want to give a really like high-level historical, um, like come-into-the-classroom kind of vibes today for um, the book of Revelation, um, and then uh, set up the coming weeks, all right? So let's read um, today's teaching text. It comes from Revelation chapter 1. Here's what it says. The revelation from Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place, he made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who testifies to everything he saw, that is, the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear it and take to heart what is written in it, because the time is near. John, to the seven churches in the province of Asia, grace and peace to you from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler of the kings of this earth. And it says seven spirits. Um, seven denotes wholeness. Spirits is a reference to the churches. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood, and has made us to be a kingdom and priest who serve his God and Father. To him be glory and power forever and ever. Amen. Look, he's coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, and even those who pierced him, and all the peoples on earth will mourn because of him. So shall it be. Amen. And Jesus says this, I'm the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. So, Lord, as we come into this um, teaching time today, I pray, God, that our brains would um, really take grasp of what it is that you um, wrote to these uh, churches. May we be inspired by them. May we um, have wisdom in understanding them. And, and God, I, um, I pray as I, as I have studied and as I've read, I just, I just don't take this lightly. God, give me wisdom. Um, make today um, from you and about you. And so what we are not today, would you make us? What we have not, would you give us? And what we know not, would you teach us? In the name of your son, Jesus, amen. All right, so uh, by a show of hand, uh, who has read the book of Revelation start to finish? doesn't have to be in one sitting or anything, okay? And then um, what about you've just read snippets, all right? Okay, very good, very good. Um, so leading up to Easter, um, we are going to be you know, going through, primarily focused on these three and we're focusing really on these seven letters to the churches in Asia Minor. It's modern-day Turkey. And so what I want to do today is I want to talk about an overview of what we're reading when we read Revelation, genre, authorship, historical background. 
I'll give you an overview of the seven churches, uh, sort of where they're located. We'll look at some maps and things like that. In fact, John mentioned this in the beginning of the service. If you go to our links page, our slides for today are all there because there's a hundred slides. Not all of them are mine, all right? Um, But there's a ton of slides in there. I want to really get those resources to you. I know a lot of people try to take pictures of the screen. Don't want you to have to do that. So go to our links page and the slides are there. Mine start on 49, so not mine, all right? And then um, what I want to do at the end is just look at these major themes and see how they apply to us in the here and the now. So let's begin here. What are we reading when we read the book of Revelation? And I love this because the book of Revelation is actually quite explicit in terms of genre. And what I just read is actually telling you what you are reading. So here's the first right here. The uh, Revelation chapter 1, verse 1. The revelation from Jesus Christ. Um, in the Greek, the word is apocalypsis, um, meaning having to do with the end times. And what it is, is that word um, revelation, or if you think about that in sort of a broader term, it's unveiling something, right? It's revealing something to you, which is what? Um, the word from is actually the word of there, the apocalypsis of Jesus Christ. So it's a book about Jesus, right? It's, a, it's revealing something about the person of Jesus. And then we can read the rest here which God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place. There's something about the future. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant, John, who testifies to everything he saw. That is the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. And so when you're reading apocalyptic literature, you're getting visions. You're getting sort of otherworldly journeys. You're getting uh, accounts of heaven and symbolism and imagery And the purpose of all of those things is to unveil hope. It's a way of of looking at something and saying, I'm lacking understanding about something. And he's writing in a way that's imaginative um, or uh, maybe a good way to think of it is poetic and even apocalyptic, but it's revealing something about the future. So it's apocalyptic. Next, verse three, John again outright says it. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, right? And blessed are those who hear it and take to heart what is written in it, because the time is near. So John says it's apocalyptic literature. It's, it's, it's having to do with the end times, but also it's prophetic. Now, we generally think of prophecy as uh, predictions or pronouncements concerning the future. That can be a, a description of prophecy, but prophecy in the Bible is generally speaking words of comfort or words of challenge on behalf of God to God's people. So they're in a moment of oppression, exile, they're on the margins, and they need hope in the moment to see uh, the future in a new reality. And so um, if if you're reading this um, today, today's a really good example of how prophetic literature can be helpful to you. If you're reading this today and you need hope, you showed up here and you said, I actually just want more in my life. I want more meaning, I want more purpose. Prophetic literature can be the means to a new reality or a new hope. And this will, this will make a little bit more sense when you see the historical context in a second. So it's apocalyptic, it's prophetic, and then you, most people miss this, but it's a pastoral letter, right? Verse 4 says this, John, to the seven churches in the province of Asia, and then look at this, grace and peace. Who does that sound like? It sounds like Paul. It sounds like Paul's epistles, right? Grace and peace to you from our Lord Jesus Christ. It's like this this repetition that you're normally hearing in an epistle. And John is saying, I'm writing this to the seven churches in the province of Asia. Grace and peace to you from 
him who is and who was and is to come, and the seven spirits before his throne. And so you read this, and parts of it just read like any other epistle. This, though, in particular is written, it's a, um, what we might call a circulating letter to the seven churches in the Roman province of Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey. And if you can you know, sort of look past some of the symbolic imagery there, you actually find it's very hopeful and poetic. So it's apocalyptic, having to do with the end times. It's prophetic. It's dreams or hope of the future. But then it's pastoral. John is pastoral. So one scholar, Bruce Metzger, he called it a hybrid document. He said, Revelation is an apocalyptic prophecy in the form of a circulating letter. Revelation is an apocalyptic prophecy in the form of a circulating letter. So this is genre. And uh, maybe one note before we get into the historical background, um, Eugene Peterson, who I just absolutely love to read, um, he, he talks about the historical importance of the book of Revelation, um, but he actually says that reading it, um, you're not going to find anything that wasn't already in the first 65 books of the Bible. And I think this is really important. This is what he said. Revelation has 404 verses. In those 404 verses, there are 518 references to earlier scripture. The statistics post a warning. No one has any business reading the last book who has not read the previous 65. So if you haven't read it, you're doing the thing right, all right? Every line of the revelation is mined out of a rich strata of scripture laid down in earlier ages. John does not merely repeat scripture. It is recreated in him. He doesn't quote scripture in order to prove something. Rather, he assimilates scripture so that he becomes someone. All right, are you joking me? We should just read this and go home, all right? Like, you, he, he's saying these things because they've already been said, but he's saying it in a new and fresh and imaginative way. It's not telling us anything new, but it's sparking our imagination and engaging us differently so that we begin to apply it. And so, what's the history? What, what's actually going on in this time? The book would have been written in about AD 96, and while John is the writer, um, in, in the first three chapters, John is simply channeling the words of Jesus. And, and I, really, I really think this is important um, for me as a teacher over the next couple of weeks. I want to be bold enough to just say, what you're reading is Jesus' words to the church. This is Jesus' words to you. Because really, through the pen of John, um, John is just channeling the heart of Jesus. These, these are Jesus' words to the church. And, and, and with that, what that would mean is... Um, this is written from the standpoint of a savior who loves you, right? This is, this is a God who loves you, who's putting pen to paper. And so sometimes it feels like critique and challenge. And when you do that, you say, when, when a friend comes to you and says, I want to challenge you, you say, essentially what you say first is, can I listen because I, do I know that person loves me? If that person really loves you, you can take in the critique and the challenge. Can we read it from that aspect? So I'm, gonna, I'm putting that as a mental note in my own head. When I'm preaching this, this is what Jesus says to the church. This is what Jesus has to say with us. Now, remember, what does that mean? Revelation was not written to you. It was not written to you. It is a gift to us, but it was not originally written to us. It was written to a very specific people in a specific context with specific challenges and with specific needs. And if we do not, if we ignore this, then what we're going to do, we're going to read it we're going to apply it directly to our lives. And this is what church, some churches do. And this is what has been done throughout history. We'll apply it to our direct moment. And this is what you end up with right here. You end up with 
Nicholas Cage. Can I get that next slide there? Uh, you get, this is what you get left with. Kirk Cameron and Nicholas Cage. Why is it always planes? Like, why is it always planes? I have a little bit of flight anxiety, and I'm like, can it just not, can it be cars? I'm better with cars. Like, ah, uh, it has to be planes. Um, I've never actually read, has anybody read, did anybody read these? Okay, okay. Uh, They're very, very popular. Um, by the way, I've watched the, like, three-minute trailer of the Nicolas Cage one, which I didn't even know was a movie. Nicolas Cage is a genius. I, I, sidebar, I watched this, um, I watched this hilarious interview with him, and someone's like, why would you make this movie? And it was like one of the Ghost Rider ones. And he was like, I made $7 million making that movie. And then he just like walked off the stage. I'm like, maybe he's the smart one of us, okay? So I, I was doing some study this week, and a, a lot of, of scholars actually reference um, the Left Behind series as a way to say this is really, really bad interpretation. And so basically what they do is they, they, they treat the Bible as a puzzle to be pieced together, as a script for the future. And it claims to be literal, or you know, some of them claim to be fiction, but regardless, they grossly misuse Scripture, and they actually miss the most important part of, of, the, uh, of, of the story of Revelation, which is, one, the person of Jesus, which is the most important part. They miss that. But then secondly, what do those movies make you do? They make you focus on the temporal. They make you focus on the here and now when the book is actually saying, hey, look into the future with hope. And so if you read it that way, then you start to read and you're like, all right, the beast is Trump, right? And the, 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 the red dragon is like socialism, you know? And you're just like, you're piecing together these stories in this really weird way and you're trying to make it fit our context, but that's wrong. This was written in the first century. So we're, we're back in fifth, sixth grade here, right? Roman Empire, okay? The, the church in this time is uh, experiencing heavy persecution under the Roman Empire. So let me run through some dates, and, and we'll do some memorization here. AD 65, who's emperor? Come on, we got this. I heard it. Nero, perfect. So Nero is emperor, right? Um, he's famous for um, feeding Christians to lions, right? So uh, this is actually Domitian. So we'll talk about this in a, just a second here. In AD 70, is the destruction of... The temple, thank you. Come on, Jerusalem. Uh, Jerusalem is almost destroyed completely um, in this time. I know, it's, it's embarrassing. We were like, I don't want to say anything out loud to be wrong. Peter is crucified. Paul is beheaded. Timothy, his disciple, is stoned to death. The Christians in this time are being persecuted in a very real way. Their lives are literally on the line. And then, uh, you can go to that next one now. AD 92. Domitian becomes emperor of Rome. It's estimated that 40,000 Christians died under his rule. He was an insecure tyrant that ordered the whole empire to bow down to him as a god. He called himself the everlasting king. This is the undertones you're getting in Revelation with this intense language. He changed the name in this time of the Roman Empire to the eternal empire, which is quite ironic because he died shortly after this was written by being stabbed in the groin. So... Good times, all right? This is actually, um, this is actually from um, Ephesus, um, this, this uh, structure. And when you would come off the boat in Ephesus, Ephesus is a port city, you would, come into, um, you would come into the city square, and we'll talk about Ephesus actually next week, um, and you would come into the marketplace, and there would be sort of a threshold that you would walk into. And there was... Um, there was either incense or salt that you had to throw in, 
And basically what you would say is it was an offering um, to the gods in the name of Caesar. You would declare Caesar is Lord as you came into um, the marketplace. And Christians in this time were saying, I can't say that. That's not, that's not something that can come out of my mouth. And here comes the apostle John. Um, John is the beloved disciple. He, he likely wrote the gospel of John, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, and the book of Revelation. And here comes John, and he essentially stands up to Domitian in this time and says, you want me to say Caesar is Lord? I can't say it. There's one Lord. There's one God. His name is Jesus. And so John refused to bow down and declare the emperor as the one true God. And you know what John was labeled, which I just love? He was labeled an atheist, right? And you're like, if that's what it means to be an atheist, let's go. I'm an atheist too, right? And so what did they do? They put John on this island. Um, this is Patmos. I was up on the Airbnbs this week for like an hour looking at Airbnbs on Patmos. I was like, send me to exile. Exile me, all right? Like, exile me. So John's punishment in this time is that he's exiled to this Greek island called Patmos. It's out in the Aegean Sea. And, you know, like, we probably want to be there right now, but, but in this time, there were these rock quarries, and it's, it's essentially a prison. Think uh, Rikers Island. Think Alcatraz. John is thrown as a political prisoner and outcast. He even says it in verse 9. I did, we didn't read this before, but it says, I, John, your brother and companion, in the suffering and kingdom and patient endurance that ours in Jesus was on the island of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus the authorities could have killed John on the spot for refusing to say Caesar is Lord, but John is likely not killed because he was too prominent a figure, and if they killed him, he would be a martyr, and they knew the Christian faith would grow. And so here's John. John is in his 70s or his 80s. He's exiled in prison. He's writing from Patmos to the churches all over modern-day Turkey. He cares deeply about them. He has warning and instructions for them. And so um, one scholar um, made a very practical reason for the strange and cryptic language, which, you know, this is just an opinion, but I think it's really brilliant. This is Daryl Johnson. He says, any letter John would write from Patmos to the churches on the mainland would be read by prison censors. So he writes in a style that allows him to convey a message the Roman authorities will not understand and probably dismiss as senseless ramblings of a man under stress. So there's one interpretation to the intense language or confusing language is, hey, he doesn't, he doesn't want, he wants his letter to go out to, to these, um, hence the references to Babylon, right? The, the captive people in the Old Testament. It's a veiled message because Babylon to, the, to them in this time is Rome. Now, one other addendum before I carry on here, because I think this is really, really important and I want to, I want to approach this really humbly. Um, I started reading, you know, over the last couple of weeks. Every night I was getting into bed, I was just reading until I fell asleep. And I would like, I would start reading, um, you know, someone's opinion on, you know, part of the book of Revelation. And I would say, oh my gosh, that's so good. And like 20 minutes later, I'd read this other person. They're like disagreeing with that. And I'm like, oh, that's so good. And I'm like, I think I know less, you know, um, about this. Um, there are really smart people, way smarter than me that disagree with things on this book. I was studying this week and trying to get the best historical stuff, trying to understand symbolism and imagery in the best way that I could. Um, so there, there can be faults in this interpretation. I want to I actually say that. And, and, and. Um, I don't want to domesticate everything in the book. 
right? It's easy to say, well, hey, this is just a product of Rome in this time. Like, there are mysteries when you read this. There are ways of looking at, um, looking at the Bible where you're like, the answer is, I don't know, you know? And so I don't want to domesticate it so much that we say, we understand everything going on here, and let's approach that over the next couple weeks where we say, you know what, this is what we think, you know, this is how we want to approach it, and this is the application that we can uh, draw from it. So let me keep going with some historical stuff quickly here, and then we'll get into some of what this means. Here's a map of the letter John is writing, and I think it was, this, is so, this is so cool for us as a, as a church in New York City. These are urban centers in this time. Um, the global population in this time, maybe 170 million, like across the whole globe. Um, and so these are major, major cities. Ephesus would be estimated around 250,000 people in this time. Um, strong ties um, to like the Greek gods. And Domitian is like set up camp in this place. It was his favorite place. And so um, Ephesus is their major port city. Um, and then let's go through some of these really quick here. Smyrna was an economic power of the time, number two there. Um, Pergamos uh, or Pergamum was a site of idol worship, Zeus. Um, one of the things that was going on there is that um, the, the Christians were um, being sort of fed leftovers. They were eating food sacrificed to idols. Tiatira uh, would have been known for its trade gills. And you'll notice on the map, there's a move inward away from the water. Um, Sardis was said to simply be a dead church. Like, it says, strengthen what remains. There's nothing left. Um, Philadelphia, there's no critique for them. And then Laodicea, um, it was one of the wealthiest cities in the time, and that's the church that ended up getting called um, lukewarm. There's a pattern in each of the letters, which I think we can glean from in terms of friendship and feedback, um, um, commendation, right? We see Jesus commend the churches for what they're doing right. And then he begins to critique them, right? He's saying, this is the way that you're missing the kingdom of God. This is the ways that you're living that's actually incongruent with the heart of God. And then there's a correction. He's saying, hey, I want you back on the right path. So um, these are in your, your, uh, your um, slides there. But um, in Ephesus, the, the commendation was that you reject evil and they persevere and they have patience, but they abandon their first love. Or Eugene Peterson they said they forgot their zestful Love. The correction was, return, the, return to the works you did at first. Um, Smyrna, that should say gracefully facing suffering. Um, he, he had no critique for them, and he said, be faithful unto death. Pergamum, keep the faith. And the problem was is that they were indifferent to heresy uh, going on, um, and it was theological in Pergamum. And he said, I want you to repent. And Tiatira, he, he commends their love and their service and their faith, but they had a moral compromise. And he, the correction was, Judgment is coming to you. And then here's three more. Sardis, some of you have kept the faith, but there's not many of you left. It's a dead church, so they need to strengthen what remains. Philadelphia, persevere in the faith. They keep the word of Christ, and they honor his name. They have no critique, and he just wants them to continue on. It's, it's all positives, right? And then Laodicea, there's nothing, to t- there's nothing positive to talk about, and they have a misguided prosperity, probably because it was a really strong economic center, and the correction was to be zealous and repent. So that's a ton of information. Tons of good stuff. Um, we're going to be adding more of that, sort of building to our understanding of the book um, over the coming weeks. But what about practice? Uh, what, is it, what does it teach us about practice in the here and now? And I think, you know, I talked about this last week a little bit, but the, Bible, the, the incredible thing about the Bible is it's still speaking. 
Like, we're here to learn from what God has to say in Scripture, not just in the historical setting, which is helpful in understanding it, but we actually are here because we say, God, I want you to teach me now, right? So what does it have to teach us now? And I really want to preview these because each of them we'll talk about in the coming weeks. And here's the first one. Revelation is a call to faithfulness amid compromise. A call to faithfulness amid compromise. So we see Roman oppression um, to the Christians in the empire in this time. And let's remember, John is writing from exile in, 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 from this island in prison. And one of the things that struck me in my reading was John's age. I'm like, how old is John? John is in his 70s, 80s. He's written, you know, other parts of the Bible. I was trying to figure out sort of the dating on some of these things. And um, I went and looked and tried to do some math about how long or when he started following Jesus. And if it's the same John, which I think it is, it's... It's approximated that he began um, uh, being a disciple of Jesus at the age of 11. Jesus invited a middle schooler to come and to follow him and to spread this message of good news. I started following Jesus in middle school, so I was like, this is amazing. What does it have to teach me? You know? So John is in his 70s, 11, 12 to 70. The arc of his life is faithfulness to the person of Jesus. Uh, some say that he was actually charged for caring for Mary, Jesus' mom, um, after his death, resurrection, and ascension. He's had a journey. Um, it, it's likely that, in, especially uh, these, of these seven churches, Ephesus, that he actually started this church in Ephesus. And now John actually has something to say to the churches. Why? Because he's been following Jesus for a really long time, and he has a boldness about him where he says, I refuse to call the emperor Lord. What is he rejecting? What is he not compromising in? It's the Roman and political ideology. The ideology of empire is seeping into the church. A call to faithfulness amid empire. And so what does that mean for us? It means there's some things we've got to talk about in terms of compromise and, um, and being faithful. Right? So there's different angles we're going to take over the next few weeks. Civilized religion, Christian nationalism, the joining of American politics and the church power dynamics. We're not going to directly apply each verse to us, right? That's what we said. We're going to filter them through. What is, what is God ultimately calling us to? And there's a critique of those. Um, here's how Michael Gorman said it in his book, Reading Revelation Responsibly. He says, the purpose of the book of Revelation is to persuade its hearers and readers, both ancient and contemporary, to remain faithful to God in spite of past, present, or possible future suffering, whatever form that suffering might take, and whatever source it may have simply for being faithful. In spite of memory, experience, or fear, Revelation tells us covenant faithfulness is possible because of Jesus and worthwhile because of the glorious future God has in store for us and for the entire created order. And then listen to this. Revelation, we might say, provides us with a vivid, imaginative, and prophetic call to an anti-assimilationist and life-giving Christian witness to, against, and within an immoral and idolatrous imperial culture of death. It does so not only by offering the hope of God's future salvation, but also by showing us that God is sovereign in the here and the now. That is a lot of words, but, but, but here's what he's saying. The early church needed hope against the empire that was oppressing it. And the early church thrived, not as a majority trying to take over, but as a life-giving minority um, meeting together in small groups and loving their neighbor as they love themselves. And that's, that's actually what Revelation is inviting us into. And so 
you can read it. I don't think this is actually a terrible application, and we'll do some of this over time, but you and I can read this and say, where am I compromised in my faith? You can even, um, maybe if you're here and you'd say, I'm not even sure about like all the faith in Jesus. Where are you prone to compromise in your own values? Right? Each of us sort of has a, is an underlying and undergirding value system. So even if you would say, I'm not so sure about Jesus yet, I, I, there's some wisdom here for all of us, with which we would say, where are you prone to compromise in your life, in your dating life, in your finances, in your taxes? Sure. That, that is an application that I think can come up uh, over the next few weeks, but let's go deeper. How am I as a person seeking comfort over a life of sacrifice for other people? How am, I, how am I actually in my life right now just sort of going with the flow and the status quo when I'm just kind of doing what everyone else is doing, business as usual? Or for some of you in the room where you, you'd say, um, I've actually felt like God is telling me to do something, but I'm so scared that it's going to cost me or I, I, it's too much for me or I don't know if I'm hearing him properly. Those are ways of compromise and we want to push into them. Next, Revelation is a call to look Listen and change. This book is mad vivid. Mad vivid. Uh, look at this passage here. Um, in, uh, it's, it's in our verse. It's in chapter 1. What does he say? Look. Right? It's not, it's not um, trust and obey. It's look. Look at the person of Jesus. Pay attention. He's coming on the clouds. And every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all peoples on earth will mourn because of him. It, it's, it's that warning. It's a pay attention right? It's grabbing your attention because you need shaken up. Um, you know, if, you're re- if we're really reading something properly and we don't understand it, what does it make us do? It makes us, some of us, sometimes me, I get tired. I'm just like, I don't care. I'm just moving on, right? No, it, it's imaginative in a way that it's saying, I want to learn more. I have to dig deeper. And that's when real learning in our lives really happens. So look, but listen. This is how the, the, the letters end in verse 22 of chapter three. Whoever has ears, Let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Are you listening? Like, are you really listening? Like, you know, you know that famous uh, quote from Pulp Fiction, right? Like, are you are you listening? Are you just waiting to speak, right? So there's some, you know, there's some practical things um, that we we can glean from this. But like, are we really listening? Are we really open to the truths about ourselves? You know what? Reading the Bible is hard sometimes because it's reading us. Right? Are we open to feedback and real change? Are we willing to say, you know what, I, I was just wrong, and, and I, I, I want to I do something different? I used to do this. It was super awkward. Um, I, I've done this a couple times, I should say. Um, you go to a friend, and you say, I'm looking for feedback in my life. What is it like to be on the other side of me? Right? Go to a friend that loves you and make sure you're in the right mood. What is it like to be on the other side of me? And what you're, in essence, asking is, what am I really like, and what are the things that I may be blind to in and of myself. Because this is, amounts to real change. Look, listen, change. How often do we have the same repeat patterns and behavior and say, I'm back here again. I'm back here again. I'm back at the same sin. I'm back in the same problem, right? Because so often we go for a band-aid instead of that real solution, which is repentance, turning back to Jesus. And so um, look, listen, and change. That's what we're talking about. And then here's the last one. His revelation is ultimately a call back to Jesus. I love that Eugene Peterson said, you're not going to learn anything new, but it can engage you in a new way that draws you back to the person of Jesus. Uh, the, the verse that comes to mind here is verse 8. I'm the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. And I put the King James Version. I've never quoted the King James Version before, 
but um, it says, I'm the Alpha and the Omega. In the original language, it says the beginning and the end. And uh, the NIV, the, the translators are like, oh, it's kind of in the Alpha and the Omega, but it's so, it's so good. Like, it's so, it, it just, it, it expands on who, who Jesus is. The beginning and the end, um, beginning in the Greek is, is arche. Um, and it, it, Jesus is saying, I'm the, I'm the archetype of humanity. Like, I'm the archetype of history and creation and salvation. I'm the first one. I'm the beginning is what he's saying. That's literally what it says. And then it says, and I'm the end. And the, the Greek word, this is like the most amazing word I've ever heard. It's the telos. Telos. Like, I, I'm, the, I'm the thing that you've been longing for. The telos is sort of the um, inherent destiny of a thing. And Really what Jesus is saying is this life makes sense and find its culmination in the person of Jesus. And so Revelation is a call back to Jesus. Um, I, don't really, I don't even know how to best, rep- I think I do know how to represent this. It's like this. It, he's saying Jesus is, is the beginning and the end, the Alpha and Omega. And I, maybe the best way for me to say it is like, Jesus is the best thing about me. Like when I, when I look at the span of my life and who I am and the things that I've longed for, I, I just look back and I say, Jesus is a thing that gave me meaning and purpose when I needed it. Jesus is a thing um, that healed me from a wound from my childhood. Jesus is a thing that um, brought me life and community and, and, and showed me what it meant to be sacrificial as a person. And I think we would be silly if we read this and we didn't consider, is Jesus really Lord and Savior of our lives as like the ultimate end and meaning our, our hearts, like that our whole heart and our whole life is actually leading up to um, a person. And so if you're here and you're like, what does that mean? I'd say, have you considered following Jesus? Because actually this is, this is like the whole purpose of who we are as a church. And so often we're prone to coming into a community like this and we say, I want wisdom, I want advice, I want notes, I want friends. Um, but are you actually, another way to say it is, are you willing to say, I want to put to death myself and I want to live towards a different telos because I've just been living for myself. And so this is a, this is a, this is a much deeper thing, and I hope over the next couple of weeks you're seeing, all right, that's, a, that's an end that, um, that brings me fulfillment, and what does it look like to take steps into that? All right? Here's where we'll, we'll conclude. I want to give you something to think about, and then uh, we'll take communion together. It's the Lenten season. Um, as a church, um, I would say we have a sort of lower liturgy, um, but we practice Lent every year. Lent is a, um, it mirrors um, uh, the Israelites wandering for 40 years. It mirrors um, Jesus wandering in the desert for 40 days. And really what it is, is it, it's, um, it's a period of time of repentance. Um, and I don't use that word lightly. It's a time where we say, I'm reflecting on what it means to be human, the brokenness of being human, um, my shortcomings, my mistake, what it's like to be on the other side of me. Um, so that we can anticipate resurrection life in the person of Jesus. And so that's 40 days. Lent is going to begin not this Wednesday, but next Wednesday. Easy to remember this year. It's on Valentine's Day. Um, We're going to be doing some sort of gathering. I think it's going to be a morning prayer for Ash Wednesday. We'll let you know um, this week. Um, But I want you to begin to think about, um, traditionally, uh, there's a fast of some sort um, at Lent. Um, I want us to begin thinking about, what is something I can abstain from for Lent? Um, the traditional is like caffeine or sweets or, you know, some sort of food. Um, a good one in our time is social media. I'll just leave that there for you. Um, but, but the question is not what I'm going to abstain from, but um, how am I going to turn back to Jesus? How am I going to reorient my time? Um, our, our, uh, our focus into the positive is actually should be the purpose. 
And so I want you to be thinking about that for us as a church. I think that would be a really cool thing for each of us to do and a really good challenge. And then um, we're going to have some sort of corporate fast. Um, We ran out of time this week, um, and I really want us, uh, starting at Ash Wednesday, to have some sort of corporate fast as a church, maybe on Tuesday or Wednesday. um, And we'll do like, so you you eat dinner, and then you eat dinner the next day. So it's a 24-period uh, of not eating. So we'll be putting some information about that. I'll talk about it next week. And we free up our time so that we can use our time, right? So we're, we're not just saying, I'm going to fast and abstain and I'm going to work harder. We're saying, I'm going to fast and I'm, I'm going to abstain so I can pray, so, so that I can um, be silent, so I can be with God. Um, and we'll be looking at that. So let me end by reading this. I'll pray right after this. This is Joel chapter 2, verses 12 and 13. Even now, declares the Lord, Return to me with all your heart, with fasting and with weeping and mourning. Rend your heart and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love, and he relents from sending calamity. Let's pray.